0: Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them, and most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform, and don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. On this episode I'm joined by Drs. Sam Kemble and Paul Harrison from the University of Birmingham's Institute of Inflammation and Aging to talk about platelets again. Now if you listened to the last episode on platelet aging with Harriet Allen and enjoyed it, this will be right up your street. Sam did his PhD with Paul and has pioneered a powerful technique called imaging flow cytometry to look at platelet production. There's some really surprising stuff in here and this is a really interesting conversation. But before we start, I really must apologise for breaking my own podcast's golden rule here of only talking to early career scientists and clinicians, but seeing as Paul is such a fantastic person to interview and is now supervising my own PhD, I just couldn't say no. Anyway, we're gonna hear a heck of a lot from Sam, who's delivered an awesome PhD and a great publication recently in Blood Advances. Hello, welcome back to Don't Just Read the Guidelines. I'm joined by Sam Kemble and Paul Harrison, who are colleagues at the University of Birmingham who work on platelets. We're going to have a really interesting discussion about a recent paper they've published in Blood Advances um, about preplatelets and barbells and all sorts of other things not related to CrossFit. Paul, Sam, really, really warm welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. This is the first one I've done in person, which is uh, really nice, having set this up during the midst of a pandemic. Um, so I've had to look all my training, all my uh, recording gear on the train, which is substantially heavier than my bag with just a laptop in. Um, so I think I'm going to leave it here and do all the other 10 podcasts that I now have on my list of to do's. Um, but let's talk about platelets, um, which is becoming one of my favorite blood cells. Um, You've recently published um, a paper that talks about the analysis of platelets and their barbell forms. Um, But why don't we just talk generally about platelets and how they're formed and and whatnot? Because I think there might be some surprises in there for people that listen. Because these aren't just things that are born in the bone marrow and then then go out and do their job, are they?
1: No, not at all. Um, Well, I guess... um, Well, there's there's recently been a paper that's due to come out in blood that really puts it quite beautifully that... That there are now considered like three stages of platelet production. Um, the first being megakaryocyte development, maturation in the bone marrow. The second being proplatelet formation, their release into the bloodstream. And then the third being what we were interested in looking at and quantifying and characterizing is this final stage of maturation where platelets. They form, well, large platelets in which we call pre-platelets form barbells, which then undergo fission um, as a final stage of maturation into two only um, really differentiated platelets. Um,
0: Just talking yeah. through that process in the bone marrow then, because how do megakaryocytes end up producing these platelets?
2: Um, <clears throat> I think that might be something you might okay. okay. have <laughs> about. Yeah, so megakaryocytes are quite a unique cell in biology, um, you know, they're polyploid cells, so they undergo endomitosis What's that? Uh, that means the nucleus undergoes uh, replication, but the cell doesn't. Okay. So that enables them to become factorists to make lots of platelets. So it's calculated based on volume, an individual megakarocyte could produce, a mature megakarocyte could produce about 2,000, 3,000 platelets. Wow, okay. Yeah. And if you work out the kinetics based on the normal platelet count, we're producing about uh, uh, about ten to the eleven platelets yeah. a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, What's that? It's in... Just to maintain the normal count. That's that's so so...
0: hundred hundred billion. Is yeah. That... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So roughly a million a second. Yes,
2: yeah, it's a million yeah. per second. That's what it. That's raised. crazy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. yeah that's okay. quite frightening when you think. Yeah. About
0: it. Yeah. And then when you think about all the amino acids that it's got to synthesize and things for that as well, it's crazy, crazy stuff, isn't it? Okay. And then i uh, i mean i've got a very rudimentary understanding of this but these megakaryocytes divide and they have these long projections that go into the blood, the bone marrow blood vessels is that kind of right what do they what happens um, do they break off or?
1: well i wouldn't say megakaryocytes divide uh well obviously during the development where they proliferate etc but yeah when they form um, proplatelets, this is kind of a point where they're in their terminally differentiated state Um, and it's thought uh, that these proplatelets will extend into the microvascular of the bone marrow and then it's unsure whether I mean it's been shown by um, Junt um, or Junt that in 2007 that actually they released then these large cytoplasmic fragments that then go into the bloodstream um, and then these will then the first uh, like small microvess um, small microcapillaries that they reach the down of the lungs, and then obviously with high shear flow in the lungs, then these are then broken up and fragmented into smaller individual platelets. Is something that is hypothesized.
0: So you're telling me that platelet production happens in the lungs.
1: Some of it does. Okay. Yeah. So that paper that was published um, back in I think it was 2017 states that like it's fifty fifty. Um, however, that's still under debate. Really, um, there's now a paper that was published in 2020 that shows that megakaryocytes in the bone marrow they actually bud platelets into the bloodstream and don't actually form proplatelets. But again, that's just a, a hypothesis, and it's not actually considered necessarily definitive. Um, but one thing they did show in that paper is that there were lots of proplatelets that were formed. In the in the lung beds. so there's definitely some element of um, platelet production that occurs in the lung. Why is it that we've taken so long as sort of humans to realise this?
0: Oh, well, I, should... I can answer that. Oh, um,
2: <laughs> I think I think it all comes down to really the discovery of thromboprotein. Okay. Because um, I've been in this field a long, long time, and uh, I got to know a lot of megakaryocyte researchers back in the '80s and we th- th- this molecule formbrepressin was always be hypothesized to exist an analog of erythropoietin if you yeah. like but no one had dif- didn- definitively discovered it or its receptor so in the mm-hmm. 90s you know not only its receptor c mipple was uh, discovered careful i say that yeah <laughs> <laughs> and they they basically cloned formbrepressin okay and that revolutionized the megakaracite research, because then you can actually drive terminal maturation okay. very easily using recombinant Pony. Mm-hmm. I, I think as well,
1: like the advancing techniques as well, particularly imaging techniques, um, intravital mi- microscopy has been important things, and these high-resolution microscopy um, like techniques that people use now allow us to actually mm. live image what's actually occurring in the blood or like for instance to see megakaryocytes release large cytoplasmic structures into the blood vessels of the cranium of a mouse okay. you know without these techniques then at least live imaging techniques then we never would okay. be able to actually see this in vivo. So.
0: And I read something somewhere about these sort of abnormally straight or these, these platelets that are, uh, are shaped in an unusual way say barbells and things that, that gets Destroyed by EDTA in blood samples, is that right? So we don't see them under the microscope.
1: Yeah, it's not so much, it's not so much they get destroyed, but I guess if you imagine you've got like a large platelet that's transformed into a barbell. If you add EDTA, then this causes them to convert back into you know circular right. disc-shaped platelets. Okay. And we know that EDTA makes platelets swell as well in size. So instead of having like normal barbell formation that would otherwise occur, then you tend to just get these sphered forms of, plat- of pre-platelets, which is why you don't readily see them in blood film analysis.
0: I'd like to go back to this bombshell that, you know, platelets are actually born in the bone marrow, but educated in the lungs, possibly. possibly. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I, I've read bits of that paper and it is really interesting. Um, uh, two questions firstly why the lungs are the lungs do, I, and I appreciate this isn't your area of sort of research but you've probably spent a lot long more, long more time thinking about it than, the most, than most of us why the lungs Why? What is that a special organ is it to do with oxygen carbon dioxide or what
1: well I think it's probably possibly two things and you probably just mentioned one then um, the I, I think the lung microcapillary beds are the first kind of vasculature that the plate is, or the pro-platelets reach that has this high level of shear and turbulence and it's been shown in multiple like 3D models of platelet production that shear force as well as turbulence is needed to like enhance or really like maximize um, pro-platelet formation and platelet release Um, and I guess oxygen as well now has been shown um, well not not yet, and it's not been published. This was something that Paul actually um, told me that it's in a in a in a talk recently. Um, that oxygen's quite important in like a plate like an in vivo platelet production setup. Yeah. Um. Without ox- like if you add oxygen, then you kind of enhance this um, hmm. platelet. Uh, sorry, this this platelet formation. So, okay. um, I don't actually understand the mechanism behind that or anything. Yeah. And I'm not really but sure.
2: There's a lot of historical data going back. Many many years. I show my age now. Um, <laughs> you know, the, showing lung formation of platelets and various classical experiments were done, like uh, obviously connecting lungs from m- mice in parallel, things like that, and also measuring um, megakaryocytes and platelets in the pulmonary artery and the pulmonary vein, and showing differences. Okay and also um there was one group in particular who was very active in this field as uh, professor john martin's group um it, he was based at um at kings in london um, predominantly in the 80s and he, they did a lot of calculations on the numbers and volumes etc and there was a chap called tony trowbridge who did some great work on all of this on these numbers mm-hmm. and it seemed to pan out that the numbers that you see of circulating actually mega in the bloodstream yeah actually does is enough to produce in the, the platelet count required on a daily basis
0: because I've looked at hundreds of blood films and you never see a megakaryocyte so where, where are they like why do I not see them
2: <laughs> I think they're very I mean platelets are bad enough to work on sometimes they're very you know very fragile and can be uh-huh. easily activated I think the same applies to megakaryocytes okay. and you've got to be very very careful how you handle them but I think the, uh, the Trowbridge martin group i think they did some nice experiments looking at some um, uh, platelet production in the fetus and in fact the um, placenta takes over as the site of platelet production okay. in the fetus because obviously the, the lungs are not functional yeah in the fetus wow. and then it switches at birth okay so it's some really nice th- th- there's a lot of great evidence out yeah. there uh, and I think even even uh, some researchers were doing early imaging of megakaryocytes in lungs and things like that in mice, as well. So, so to me,
0: it's not just that platelets. Uh, so the megakaryocytes are sort of budding off bits of cytoplasmic remnant or whatever, the big big bits of cytoplasmic and Those those bits floating off to the lungs and and forming platelets. It's physically big megakaryocytes, full formed, mature megakaryocytes leaving the bone marrow and going off to the lungs
2: yeah mm-hmm. yeah one of the classical experiments I think is if you look at patients undergoing cardiopulmonary bypass uh-huh. so you're actually switching off pulmonary circulation yeah. the number of circulating megacarocytes goes up in the bloodstream oh.
0: okay.
2: <laughs> okay so there's a lot, there's so much on yeah. really nice evidence and it's and it's, it's considered controversial okay but it all changed I think when when, when as I said earlier thombopuritin was discovered and then you could terminally mature, mature megakaryocytes in culture, and so I think it was Jerry, Jerry Taliano was the first one to show beautifully how proplatelets formed. It's a classic video that everybody uses okay. for teaching, etc., showing beautiful proplatelet formation, and then even platelets budding off the ends of those proplatelets.
0: Okay. So just to clear up some terminology, then megakaryocytes obviously big, the original cell that platelets come from, and then we've got. A few definitions that I just want to go through. So pro-platelets, there's this historical term called reticulated platelets or reticular platelets. And then we're going to talk about barbell platelets and anything else. Let, over to you guys, just just go through those definitions <laughs> for me.
1: Well, <clears throat> proplatelets are like large, uh, elongated cytoplasmic structures that are either still attached to the megakaryocyte that kind of protrude and then will then enter the vasculature. Um, they can also be free-floating or free-circulating in the bloodstream. Um, they can have multiple platelet structures, tandem arrays along the structure. It's not necessarily like a barbell where you would have um, this sort of similar elongated structure um, with two platelets at the both distal ends. Um, An important characteristic would be the microtubules, where they have this continuous uh, microtubule marginal band that basically elongates, forms two teardrop structures at either end. And then if you have these tandem arrays of platelets along the cytoplasmic shaft, then you would then see like almost formation of this kind of um, marginal band, which is incomplete within these tandem arrays, whereas it's more complete in the two distal ends. Um, and what's quite fascinating about um, these kind of microtubule structures is that, I mean, we talk about these large cytoplasmic structures that are released into the, the bloodstream and then, but these still need to then form platelets, you know, there still needs to be some sort of packaging of RNA as well as um, the granules. Um, and this is an active process that occurs um, through multiple motor proteins that either transport these... Um, transport proteins along the side along the uh, microtubule um, along with the microtubules and then these become then i mean we don't really know how they become packaged but they they become packaged okay. and whether this is selective or random we still don't know and um, and i guess uh, so the other terminology would have been the reticulated platelets preplatelets, and um, immature platelets yeah. they say i mean this i think there's a mass confusion really in the literature Um, Young platelets are considered to be reticulated platelets as well as immature platelets as well as newly born platelets. Um, Historically, they're known as reticulated um, and these were first identified in a model of acute blood loss. It was a canine uh, model where basically uh, researchers they acutely bled these uh, dogs over so many days, and then through uh, blood film analysis they um, used a new methylene, I think methylated blue. New methylene blue. Yeah, methylene blue. It's a very dated uh, (laughs) procedure. They basically showed that there was a new population of large platelets that um, had like a dense reticulum, and then they turned these reticulated. And then by flow cytometry, you could then measure these using a nucleic acid dye and a platelet-specific dye, and you would say that the largest platelets with the with the highest uh, nucleic acid content would be reticulated or young platelets. And this method was then advanced further into a hematology analyzer, a Sysmex hematology analyzer, using like more novel uh, dyes. And these were termed immature platelets and the immature platelet fraction. so whether they're exactly identical to each other we're still unsure because the measurements sometimes relate, they sometimes don't, and there's been lots of comparisons over the years. Um, I think one of the main differences is that the dyes for the Cismex they tend to specifically label like mitochondrial RNA. Whereas the dyes that we use, like thiazol orange, as a general nucleic acid dye, it literally just labels all nucleic acids, but it also non specifically labels like um, nucleotides in the dense granules. So you can often get like an inaccurate or an over exaggerated quantification. So
0: just to interject for sort of general listeners, you're staining for RNA in platelets because they run out of RNA as they age. Is that is that correct? So they've got more, the more RNA they've got, the younger they are.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. considered there's two pools of RNA. like uh, like a, a stable pool that's used for protein synthesis, but as well as like a an unstable pool that is thought to like rapidly degrade within the first 24 okay. hours to maybe like 48 hours of the platelet loss. Okay.
0: So, yeah. So let's turn to your very recent paper in blood advances. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know Sam's been through the uh, meal with his PhD trying to get samples off patients here in Birmingham. Um, and I had a chat with him about five years ago about this. So I'm so pleased that you've managed to do it. And we see this work here. Um, the paper is called Analysis of Preplatelets and their Barbell Platelet Derivatives by Imaging Flow Cytometry. And I've got some friends who are into CrossFit, so that's why they'll be very excited about this. I will we'll tell them. Um, Paul, maybe just tell me the context of this and why, why you sort of started with this work and where the PhD idea came from.
2: Yeah, this goes back a long way, actually. It's quite an interesting story. So Sorry, historically, <laughs> I used to work on immature platelets and reticulated platelets when I was at UCL and then in, in Oxford before I came to Birmingham. And I think there were two papers that came out in about 2009 and then about 2010, 2011. There was a paper from the Salt Lake City Group by schwartz et that showed that platelets could undergo fission. So they put individual platelets into cell culture and they could show them dividing. Fission being well at half. Yeah, division, if you like, but obviously it's not classical cell division. So there was that, which was you know a very interesting paper and, and a very well-cited paper. And then there was work from the Boston Group, again, Joe Italiano, but it was particularly Jonathan Ton is the first lead author, where they actually quantitated these structures that we'd been defining. So they quanti- they quantitated what they call pre which are these large precursors that can undergo fission into two platelets. And they, we think, they thought they were immature platelets, but they didn't definitively prove that. So I came along and looked at these papers, having worked on immature platelets, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we could image the platelets and prove definitively by imaging flow cytometry, which was in its early days then that we could actually quantitate immature platelets based upon not only their RNA labeling, but also their structure and their size. So uh, what I did when I came to Birmingham, I designed an intercalating student projects and uh, about five, six years ago, a student chose that project and we spent a year working on it and we developed uh we got some preliminary data actually using an image imaging flow cytometer at brunel university because the university here didn't have one at the time and that enabled me to write a grant to the british art foundation to fund a phd student and that phd student was sam so here we are so sam uh, when he started we actually the, the university invested as a core instrument in an imaging stream flow cytometer, a very expensive piece of kit, mm-hmm. and Sam be- rapidly became the university's expert on using this instrument uh, because it involves a lot of image analysis software. Okay. Uh, so actually capturing images is quite easy, but it's actually getting the data out of it is the, is the crux.
0: Sam, just tell me this imaging stream flow cytometer, just basically, what is it? Why is it a great piece of kit?
1: Well. If you, if for all the flow cytometers out there, if, if you like, if you well, just think,
0: maybe we should just explain to the generalist what flow cytometry is very briefly, if you can.
1: Well, um, flow cytometry is basically where you can. You can There's multiple antibodies that you can use to specifically label a cell that are conjugated to specific fluorochromes, and then a flow cytometer, in a nutshell, can basically use different lasers to detect uh, which cells express, for example, CD3, CD4, um, and it just helps you to basically immune phenotype a heterogeneous population of, okay. of cells. Um, basically the image stream uses that concept but it also applies microscopy at the same time so if you imagine you have a scatter plot which shows a population of i don't know cd3 positive cd4 t cells and um, you can then look at the an image you can select any individual like dot from that scatter plot and it will give you um, a, basically an image wow. as well and it will portray exactly where the um fluorochrome's come up to where the receptors are expressed if there's any internalization you know you can quantify all these things using the image stream based on the markers or the question that you want to ask basically.
0: That's massively powerful then.
1: Yeah so it just basically combines flusotometry and microscopy and it gives you this really high throughput kind of phenotypic morphometric analysis of the cell.
0: Now I appreciate I'm going to ask you to do something it's fairly difficult just talk me through this paper and tell me the sort of the key the key findings. Because it is, it is really interesting, and it's, it's, it's answering a really important question, I think.
1: Yeah, so like Paul said, we, we set out really to try and understand um, if immature platelets were indeed these so these platelets that can undergo like, barbell formation and, and fission into two mature platelets in the bloodstream. Um, and what we really wanted to do first is to come up with a way in which like design a designer method with the image stream... Um, a way in which we could not only label but also quantify. Um, well, it was actually a way to label, quantify, and also fix whole blood, so we could actually run the whole blood instantly through the image stream um, from healthy controls as well as patient samples to kind of rule out as or really add as little kind of you know manipulation yeah. to the blood as possible,
0: and cutting out a lot of time and effort.
1: Oh, cutting out a lot of time and effort. Yeah, I mean what we found originally when designing this was that maintaining the blood at 37 degrees was critical yeah. Um if we let the blood cool to room temperature then we didn't see any bar valves um, circulating in the blood so temperature is a very very important thing and this is really probably not unexpected as you know others like for instance ton have shown as well as uh, sverts if you incubate platelets at 37 degrees they almost slightly expand, um, which allows them to, uh, which basically facilitates the um, elongation of the microtubules and then this transformation into the barbells. Um, If you, at room temperature, then they tend to become a little bit more compact and this is no longer possible. Um, so we basically based on size, anticoagulant, obviously we couldn't use EDTA, so we used sodium citrate, and we designed a method with the stream and then we wanted to just basically see how the, these measurements, correlate, like the barbell measurement, correlated with the current um, immature platelet measurements that we have, for instance with the Sysmex that I mentioned earlier. Um, we wanted to know what fraction of barbells were in the whole blood, as well as pre-platelets, so any platelet that was over three microns in diameter and then how this compared to like then the total platelet count. Um, We then wanted to look in ITP patients um, to basically show that if for instance in ITP, so immune thrombocytopenia where um, not in all cases, but in in a lot of cases that you have this kind of enhanced platelet production, increased peripheral destruction. So you have a lot of circulating immature platelets and what we would hypothesize to be lots of barbell platelets in the circulation. And we basically used the image stream to show that there was an increase in these barbell uh, platelets that were circulating in our ITP patients. We also showed this by microscopy and we labelled with um, a tubulin um, antibody there and showed like the, with high resolution microscopy, the, the like full like kind of cytoskeletal characterization, showing that it wasn't actually just two platelets that had fused together. It was like a single single platelet that had formed this barbell that had this continuous figure of eight microtubule microtubule, um, cytoskeleton. And then uh, we wanted to then uh, go forward and maybe characterize it a little bit further in mice just to definitively show that they were indeed immature platelets. And to do this, we used a biotinylation experiment in mice. Um, this was following a like, complete characterization in the mouse and really showing what we've already shown in the human. Like, if you induce thrombocytopenia, you see an increase yeah. in these barbell structures. But we basically used a biotinylation experiment where you can label all the cells in the circulation with biotin. And then, say, for instance, at a, a time point later, which we opted as 24 hours, if you then take a blood sample um, and then look on flow cytometry, if you label for a platelet-specific marker, you, those that are negative for biotin would be the newly formed platelets that had occurred in the 24-hour period, and those that were still positive for biotin would be the old circulating platelets. And we basically used the image to show that all the barbells in the circulation were indeed negative for biotin, yeah. so they were all newly formed within that 24-hour period. Um, obviously, the 24-hour Time point was a little lim- limiting. Um, we were quite rushed with some of the mouse experiments in the sense that we had six months to get everything done before the person with the license disappeared to okay. another country. So it was a case of pick. We you know we we opted for the most you know really suitable time point that we yeah. thought. But you know now we've got our result. It would be great to do some earlier time points and really see that like put yeah. together like some sort of kinetic analysis of this barbell formation. Um, and yeah and one of the interesting things that we did find was that not all large platelets were immature and that not all platelets over three microns in diameter had certainly under resting conditions had this capacity to transform into barbells because in the biting old platelet population there were also large platelets as well as small platelets so whether this process is highly regulated under resting conditions and then something like yeah. is switched on when there's kind of like this sort of stressed environment where you're getting destruction of platelets and then it can induce these platelets that wouldn't normally yeah. otherwise transform into viral we, We're actually unsure um, from this but it was just interesting to show that it's actually a subpopulation of large platelets that are actually the immature preplatelets that can undergo this final stage of maturation.
0: And then you touch on in your discussion, well, touch on is as a, as a probably the wrong word. It's you, you, pretty well stressed that this probably has some clinical relevance. Do you want to go yes, into that? Yes,
1: definitely. Um, I mean, using immature platelets in a clinical setting has been somewhat a challenge over really since the nineties. When the flow cytometry method was was generated, um,
0: we mean using immature platelets as a measurement. Yeah, right? as a measurement, a of yeah, kind right. of
1: like an indirect yeah. way to measure platelet turnover. Yeah. So it could be a way as like a biomarker to to show that you know you've got uh, if you've got a low platelet count, if you've got a high uh, fraction of immature platelets, then you could say that you've got a, a, a platelet disorder where there's a high level of peripheral destruction. Yeah. Um, this also, it can now be used for biomarkers for cardiovascular disease, um, as well as like um, antiplatelet therapy. If you're resistant to antiplatelet therapy, it's showing that if you have a high fraction of reticulated platelets, then you're more resistant okay. to antiplatelet therapy.
0: How is it a biomarker <clears throat> in cardiovascular disease in that context?
1: Um, so it's shown that if you have a high fraction, again, of reticulated platelets or immature platelets, then you have a higher risk of huh. a thrombotic event. Okay. And that ties in
0: because I interviewed Harriet Allen, who is one of the PhDs, well mm-hmm. now postdoc, uh, down in London, and and maybe that ties in with with her stuff about you know the 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 the, the, the newer platelets are perhaps the most active, yes, and it that, maybe yeah. marries into this theory why patients with ITP, despite having low platelet counts, are still at higher risk, higher risk in the general population having thrombosis, which is yeah. bizarre, and I think your your work all ties into that story, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I think. So one of the things that I, I i had to spend a lot of time in clinic um trying to recruit patients um so i actually got to speak to the patients and i don't think many research scientists yeah. really get to do that and um whenever i used to speak to some of them some of them had like they were quite fascinated and had lots of questions about you know <laughs> yeah. you know some of the the things that are involved with their particular um platelet disorder and one one that always used to come up was like that they had a really low platelet count but they didn't bleed and you know it just got me thinking that because I, I, I would, we'd obviously need a much higher end number for this than what we actually ended up getting but mm. in that particular patient who asked me that question she had the highest like barbell count that okay. I've ever measured in any individual and I just wonder if it's because she has a high fraction of these like immature dividing platelets yeah. that kind of compensates for that kind of massive decrease in the platelet production.
0: Were these all untreated ITP patients or were some of them on mimetics or anything like that?
1: Um, so I basically um, excluded um, the um, patients that were on Romyplostin. Okay. Um, they tended to have a really high immature platelet count um, and it was quite variable with their barbell counts. Yeah. Um, yeah we there were a lot of patients that were on steroids okay. um, or some form of steroid treatment um there was maybe one or two that were completely naive for treatment um but like I say with the end number we'd really need yeah. to kind of increase this to see if there was any significant okay. difference between it as well as um um sex as well yeah um but from from our findings we didn't actually observe any difference such as within the treatments or within the within the sex of the Patients as well. I
0: mean, I think you've done a remarkable job with such sort of lowish numbers to be able to actually come up with something concrete. Because our as humans, our platelet count's so wildly different, even in normal people. And mm-hmm. as you said, patients' with platelet count of one or two or three don't bleed, and it's it's really strange. So, <laughs> done really well to, to yeah, get some I concrete we, findings I think,
1: there. Think a look. Is, well, <laughs> is also, uh, it's also quite really elegantly that designed. There, yeah, um, I mean, the the barbell counts were quite variable. Yeah. I guess so with the IPF, like the immature okay. platelet counts as well. So it was expected really. And, you know, we we kind of stereotypically say that, you know, if you've got ITP, you've got enhanced platelet production and ha- enhanced peripheral destruction. But it's not always the case. You yeah. know, there's patients that have a really low platelet count but also have a low immature platelet count and had a low um, barbell formation okay. as well. And so it's it's quite a heterogeneous yeah. Um, disorder.
0: So in, in reality in clinical medicine if you get someone with ITP generally it's someone who's suddenly dropped their platelet count although sometimes you don't have that previous platelet count to compare with and the question always is is this definitely ITP because really it's a diagnosis of exclusion mm. classically the only way to really know there's two ways, one is look at their response to immunosuppression, if you mm. give them IVIG or steroids and their yeah. platelet count gets better then it almost certainly is IVIG but we've de- I've definitely been involved in cases where you've been caught out where well, you have given a couple of weeks of steroids and either it's not done anything or it's done a little bit and then they relapse and then you have to start thinking again. And in that situation, you obviously need to do a bone marrow test to see. Mm. If they've got plenty, plenty of megakaryocytes in the bone marrow, then we'll just assume that it's ITP. If they've got something else nasty in there, then you'll see it. I've definitely seen patients relapse with lymphoma with something that looks like ITP. Yeah. I've seen a guy with MDS that looked like ITP. Um, so it's really difficult and I mean I know you touched on this in the discussion as well is this is this technology something that you could potentially use in the clinic say I get a new patient coming to A&E plate counts 10 I don't know what this is can I do IPFC and say definitively whether this is immune or whether I need to bone marrow for aplastic anemia
1: so I think having anemia stream in a clinical setting is massive limitation really to the method um you know they're quite like Paul said they're quite expensive and it requires like someone technical to be running them yeah. it's probably a time consuming you know considering with like for instance a hematology analyzer, you literally just put a blood sample in I think it's 80 seconds later you get a full blood count I wish that that's all it took <laughs> to, to run it on the image stream but it takes a lot longer because obviously there's antibody labelling yeah. um, and processing of the blood as well but um, one of the things that we have suggested in which I talked about in my thesis, and actually if that's the uh, bioarchive version of the discussion, then are uh, we actually talk in the discussion of the paper that's being published like okay. limitations to implementing the image stream into a clinical setting. Uh, one of the ways in which we could do this is that if we had appropriate anticoagulants um, we could like develop some sort of machine learning um technique on the image stream. Yeah. Um, these are like new applications that are installed in the image stream analysis platform now where you can basically build this kind of machine learning quantification based just on bright field imaging. So if you had like for instance someone that could do like the development of this method based on fluorescent labeling, like say, you know, this is a barbell, it expresses this, it looks this shape and then you could basically then use the brightfield images to build this kind of machine learning process you could literally just take blood and then dilute it and run it on the image okay. stream with your machine learning process then you could actually quantify the barbells um, with the advantages of this whether you th- you could i think if you have got high fraction of barbells circulating in your blood i think it would suggest that you wouldn't need a platelet transfusion that sort of okay. in that sort of element uh, for instance if you imagine that um, uh-huh. you'd undergone chemotherapy and this is something we showed in our paper that um, you kind of deplete your plate, so you, you basically ablate your bone marrow and then I think from what I understand and what I've been told by um, clinicians is that you tend to have like prophylactic platelet transfusions yeah. just to kind of as kind of like a preventative yeah. to you know and um, but i think if you were able to take like a quantification of the rate in which your platelets are maturing then you could maybe rule out that need for um, a prophylactic uh, platelet transfusion so i think it could be quite important in that sense and that this is something that's been trying to be trying to be done with with ipf measurements as well as reticulated platelet measurements but because the measurements are not accurate then it's never really been implemented Um, in regards to like um, like maybe diagnosis of peripheral destruction I think from from what I would have, would have uh, assumed is that if you again have a high fraction of barbell circulating in your blood um, but you have a low platelet count then this suggests to me that there's peripheral destruction Yeah. Um, if you have a low platelet count but no barbells then this would suggest to me there's something probably going on in the bone marrow or something to do with maybe like a genetic disorder in the cytoskeleton of the platelet. So it could maybe influence you to then take a different analysis and maybe go forward with the bone marrow aspiration, which from speaking to patients, that makes them like churn in their their seat. It's
0: it's not a nice thing. And we always try and avoid doing them if we can. I mean, Paul, I mean, you've got a lot of experience in this field. Do you think this is something that's feasibly possible to get into clinical medicine? Yeah, I mean, mean,
2: obviously, uh, image stream flow cytometry, the evolution of those cytometers has been very much dependent on evolution of computer technology and Uh the speed of computing and processing. So, you know, you could get to a point where you may have a really cheap image stream, um, which can rapidly process samples in the way that Sam mentioned, using artificial intelligence and go looking for the populations that basically just on bright field imaging, and, and we won't need to label with platelet-specific markers or farsal orange or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think that could be a theoretical possibility. You could even envisage that a, a future haematology analyzer, I mean, the Sysmex XN, which we've got in our lab, is a beautiful state-of-the-art analyzer. But imagine if you could do image imaging of all of the data in that instrument as well on all of the cells, yeah. that would revolutionize hematology, because then you wouldn't have to do blood films. Yeah. You could actually go looking for the phenotype of the cells you're interested in, whatever: leukemia, lymphoma, whatever. There's going to be a lot of upset
0: people if we're not doing morphology.
2: I know. I know. <laughs> well, also there might be a lot of happy people as well, yeah, because yeah, it is labor-intensive. Yeah um, there,
1: is, there is that CObus. Roche yes. um, instrument isn't there that does actually base the the full blood count on morphology, yeah, yeah. but that's based from taking images from from. Wow. Um, it's a slide-based bl- instrument, films, okay. so yeah.
2: you're looking at blood films, but you can actually it will give you a picture of every platelet on that blood film. Yeah. Okay. For example. Yeah.
1: And then you could argue that maybe it wouldn't be sensitive enough to to detect barbells if they're rare events. Um. So. Yeah. You know, this is... It's a a, numbers game. A number's game, really. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. So what's next? Sammy, I understand you're not working in this anymore or?
1: No, I'm not working in this field anymore. In fact, I've not worked in this field for almost uh, two years okay. now, which is why I'm probably a little uh, rusty on <laughs> my <by laughs> knowledge. Um, no, I actually work uh, looking at um, like pathogenic or immune inflammatory synovial uh, fibroblastin and rheumatoid okay. arthritis. So, um, My field has um, changed somewhat over the last year. 18 months really Um, I guess really this is probably a question for you Paul if you're continuing with this area of research well based
2: based upon the results that we've published in the paper and some of the discussion we've just had it opens up a lot of possibilities you know we've got the possibility of AI analysis and really simplifying the procedure to go and identify these things Mm -hmm. using just brightfield. um I think one of the intriguing things is looking for more abnormalities in this terminal maturation. Um, so various forms of thrombocytopenia, and particularly macro thrombocytopenia. You know, one of the things we originally wanted to do in Sam's project was look at different types of thrombocytopenia, not just ITP, but because of lockdown, we couldn't do it. Okay. And we also wanted to investigate some of the mass models available in cardiovascular from uh, Steve Watson's group and Neil Morgan's group, right. looking at inherited forms of thrombocytopenia, et cetera, where they've actually um, knocked out genes in, in the mice. And so we could begin to define which genes are important in terminal maturation. Okay. So intriguingly, a paper has just come out in the recent issue of Blood uh, as we were discussing, excellent earlier. timing, mm-hmm. um,
0: and it's the front cover, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and it's on the front cover, and it's from the Cambridge group, from Cedric Gubert's group, um, looking at this orphan receptor. And I'm trying to remember the name of the receptor. CLF
0: was it CLF? Yeah, so it's it's a
2: I CLF, CRLF3, cytokine receptor-like factor, it's which is basically a regulator of mat- platelet maturation. So, pre maturation, which is exactly what we've been talking about. Yeah. And what's particularly interesting is if you look at knockout mice, you knock that gene out, you, you get thrombocytopenia and you get the presence of large pre in the bloodstream, yeah. although they seem to be cleared by the spleen. So, that is an interesting observation because that might hint at how this is being regulated. Yeah. The interesting thing about that receptor is it's an orphan receptor. So we don't know much about its physiology. So we um, do now. <laughs> yeah, so it could open up a lot of possibilities. I mean, I'm sure Cedric is working on this, yeah. um, uh, and probably other people in the field too. But uh, as you know, there's a lot of interest in making platelets in vitro, yeah. f- eventually for therapeutic use. And so I think understanding this terminal maturation process is going to be critical in actually getting the platelet numbers required to make a product that's suitable for transfusion. Yeah. Yeah. Because at the moment, they can't make enough. Yeah. You can make them, and they look like platelets, behave like platelets, but it's a numbers game. Yeah. yeah, And you've really got to scale it up, you know, to these huge factories of mega and <laughs> producing platelets, you know, billions of platelets per yeah. day. Yeah. Um, it's quite, you know, quite an amazing piece of research if that can be achieved. Yeah. And there's a lot of people working on it.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think that drawings, draws to a close what was a really fascinating discussion. Um, this is why I love doing these, because it pushes me out of my comfort zone and, and gets me to read things that I probably should read, but maybe haven't. So thank you so much to you both. Sam, it's a lovely um, a lovely journal article. I know how hard you worked. So I know the barriers you overcame. So
1: thank really, very really much.
0: well done, if that means anything for me. Um, Paul. Uh, Paul is supervising my PhD, although we haven't started that project yet. Um, so I'm sure I'll see we can work on barbells
2: if you want (laughs) maybe
0: we should maybe we should (laughs) Um, so um, we'll have lots of discussions but um, that was brilliant and um, uh, perhaps come on the show again
2: yeah definitely yeah thank you we'll hopefully come on and explain how we do AI analysis in the future (laughs) brilliant cheers
0: Well, thank you to both Paul and Sam for that fascinating chat. If you would like to read more about their work, please look up their recent paper in Blood Advances and I'll post the link in the podcast information. If you want to find out more about the subject of platelet development and maturation, then check out, if you haven't already, episode nine with Harriet Allen. I've got loads more interesting interviews booked and these will be coming to your ears in the next few months, so stay tuned. Don't just read the guidelines, it's for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content, but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.